Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Punk Rock MBA Podcast. As promised in my video the other day, in this episode, I'm going to answer a bunch of the questions that were submitted for my Q&A viewer comments thing that I was not able to get around to in the video. I've got quite a few of them here. I will try to get as many as I can answered here. Before I do that, there are a couple ways that you can support the show if you would like to. Number one, share this on social media. That really helps a lot because, as I've said before, the podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify and stuff really don't do a lot to help us with discovery. So if you share this on Twitter or Facebook or Friendster or TikTok or Orcut or whatever, we appreciate it. helps a lot. Number two, we have some merch if you want to support there. Number three, if you really, really like us, you can support on Patreon. Patrons get every show a week early. There is a members-only Discord server that I'm in all the time. There's also a chance to have me review your band or podcast or YouTube channel or graphic design or photography portfolio, anything else that you would like to get my eyes on. So if that sounds cool, you can check that out at the link in the show notes. And let's get into the questions. In no particular order, the first one here is from six to five. What are the strangest, coolest things you've seen happen at a live show? I remember a show back in the late 90s watching MXPX in an outdoor festival. The power went out in the middle of their biggest song. The crowd sang through the entire rest of the song together in the dark. And when things came back on, you could see it was a really meaningful experience for the band. Good times. I've seen a few of those power outage kind of things. One was a scary one. I saw Integrity in probably 1997 or 98. It was their first show they'd played in Cleveland in quite a while. And there were a bunch of like gnarly skinheads and stuff like that. And the power went out in the middle of their set, which is maybe like 1 a.m. or something like that. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is not good. It was like pitch black in there. And I could hear people screaming and like, you know, things being thrown around and stuff. And I was like, fuck, are the lights going to come back on and like half the room is going to be dead? Fortunately, I think, I don't know, maybe somebody got, you know, in a scuffle or something like that, but it was nothing serious. Other, I guess, kind of funny, weird thing I saw at a show was around the same time I saw Guttermouth at this outdoor venue in Cleveland uh, called Nautica. If you have, speaking of integrity... If you look at the back of uh, Humanity is the Devil, I think, there's that picture of them playing in an outdoor stage. It was that venue, that stage that this happened at. The singer of Guttermouth like, brought somebody up on stage, some like random person out of the crowd, and like took their shirt off. And I'm not certain whether it was a guy or a girl or what, but took this person's shirt off and like spanked them and made them do like the limbo and said a bunch of really weird shit to them. And it was... Very strange. I don't know. It was the 90s. You know, it was a different time. 
Next one from John LDZ. If your entire wardrobe was replaced only with the popular items of new metal, emo, or butt rock fashion, which would you choose to flex on with us for the rest of time? Well, that is easy. I would go all butt rock. I would get the Chuck Liddell mohawk, the leather wrist cuff, the bedazzled boot cut affliction jeans, some kind of like shirt with a foil print of a dragon on it or something like that. Those kind of like work boot type shoes that they only sell at like the buckle and guys who are either in construction or the military wear, but they're not actually work boots. And of course, at least one chain wallet. Maybe, you know what? Maybe two chain wallets just to be safe. Yeah, that's what I would do. I would go all butt rock. Next one from Tom Ford Draws. More life advice stuff, please. How do you balance life with work life? You have so many projects and day job and your partner too. So how do you make sure to spend quality time together amidst all that? First of all, I think it's interesting that we say partner now because as of just a couple years ago, if somebody said partner, that meant they were gay. And this referred to their partner like in a same-sex relationship. That is no longer true. Now it just means anybody. Interesting way that language shifts. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Just kind of interesting to observe that. So for anybody who doesn't know, I'm married. And so Tom is referring to my wife. The way that I think about this is in terms of priorities. The number one priority is my relationships with my wife and our family and anybody else that's important to us. That always comes first. Number two is my physical and mental health. And number three is work. So I think about it in those terms. I mean, I care a lot about all those things and I definitely care about work a lot. But, you know, if there's ever a situation where I feel like I could work for another two hours on this thing, but that would maybe mean I'm not being the best husband I could be and I'm maybe ignoring her or anything like that. Or, you know, I could work for another two hours on this, but I also haven't worked out in two days. Then, you know, I make the trade-offs in favor of relationships and in favor of my mental and physical health. So, you know, there's no kind of magic bullet situation there. And sometimes it's not really clear how those trade-offs should be made, but that's always how I think about it. I guess to be specific, you know, I make sure to carve out, well, let's say in the old world where things are a little bit more predictable, I had a regular schedule for jujitsu. I went on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or sorry, Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. Sometimes I would maybe get in another day, but routine is the answer here to me. So I know when I'm going to do jujitsu. Uh, I know that, you know, usually around like seven o'clock at night or something like that, I stop working. And that's when like Lynn and I do stuff together. And on the weekends, I know that we're going to like go out to lunch and we're going to get coffee in the morning and we're going to have some sort of outdoor outing, weather permitting. So I just kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to spend my brain power figuring this stuff out like on a like daily basis. So I create a routine for myself where I feel like those things are relatively well balanced and I just follow the routine. So that's what works for me. Um, you know, I don't know if that will work for everyone else. I know a lot of people seem to not like routine, but I do. From Luke Rossi, top bands slash artists that are new have debuted in the last few years and might be on the way up. I don't really, you know, I, I don't know what last few years means, but... I'll just take a look at my Spotify here. Uh, a couple artists that I like that are newer. Um, Aaron Cartier or Cartier, I don't know how you say it. He's kind of a you know hyper pop kind of guy. Devilish Trio is pretty cool. They're like a three of six mafia kind of knockoff. Really like Tokyo Vanity. She's like stripper fight music from Love and Hip Hop. If I Die First, talked about them. That's like the Lil Lotus and 
uh, Ned and uh, Zubin and all those people doing like uh, their like scene revival supergroup. City Morgue, of course, love them. I talk about them all the time. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, Kid Trash, I like more of that like kind of hyper pop stuff. Uh, Ravenna Golden, more hyper pop. Just kind of scrolling through my Spotify here. Drain, probably my favorite, like newer hardcore band. They're not super new, but newer. Uh, Light Skin Keisha, I love her. Again, more stripper fight music. I don't know. You get the idea. Omerta, good as far as like hardcore kind of stuff goes. You get the idea. I mean, that's pretty much mostly what I listen to is like rap or pop and like a smattering of like newer hardcore stuff. So hopefully you like some of that stuff. All right, what's next here? From Jake Hip, general tips for bands slash artists on Instagram. Well, I have some tips for Instagram, but it's not really specific to bands or artists. It's just for anybody. What you need to do is ask yourself for every piece of content, what's in it for them, them being the audience, not what's in it for me. And this is where people go wrong, whether you have a product to sell or a podcast or music to promote or whatever. Like if you look at somebody's feed and it's all just like, listen to my music, listen to my music, listen to my music, listen to my podcast, listen to my podcast. Nobody wants that shit because think about it this way. Every time you ask somebody to do something, whether that's listen to your podcast or go to a show or an event or anything else, that's like making a withdrawal from the bank. And every time you put out a piece of content that is just giving without expecting anything in return, so putting out something that is funny or thoughtful or entertaining or inspiring or informative or something like that without asking them to do anything, that's like making a deposit in the bank. So it's just like money. The more deposits you make when it comes time to make a withdrawal and ask them to do something like listen to our new single, then you'll be more successful. So it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but I think the best way to promote yourself is to not directly promote yourself. It's to put out content that people like that has nothing to do with like, you know, listen to my band, listen to my band, listen to my band. Like it should be, I would say maybe a 90%, like think of it as like a 90%, 10% ratio in favor of non-promotional stuff. You have to promote yourself sometimes, obviously, or else people won't know what you're doing, but it should be a very, very small portion of what you're doing. So that's the number one thing I would say. Number two thing is forget about brand or company accounts. And that's what bands are. Like if you look at pretty much any band, the band account gets a fraction of the engagement of what like the individual members accounts do. Like typically the singer is, you know, the most well-known person in the band. That's not always true, but let's assume it's the singer. The singer's account will generally have way better engagement than the band's account does. So I think you should have those band accounts just to have them, but the real action is on your personal accounts, not the band account. Next one from Don Rowe. What's the most recent piece of technology you've gotten excited about? Could be hardware, software, or something even more abstract? Great question. What I'm excited about right now is the no-code or low-code movement. So in the past, if you wanted to create software, you needed to be able to write code pretty well. And it continues to get easier, you know, back in the day, like I remember when I was a kid, you know, if you wanted to write an application, you needed to know like C or C++, which is hard. Like <laughs> I tried to learn that stuff and I quickly realized that although I'm capable of learning it, I did not want to like deal with managing pointers and all that shit that you have to do with C. Now it's become easier since then as like scripting languages and stuff have gotten more popular, but still to build an application until very recently, you needed to know how to write code. And again, I do know how to write code, but I'm not great at it. And I don't really necessarily, 
enjoy it. Like I like making things, but I get really, I just, when it comes to debugging and shit like that, it's just such a pain in the ass. I don't like doing it. Um, but I understand conceptually how software is built. Like I, again, I can write code. So I, I understand the idea of here's this thing that needs to talk to this thing. And then when they talk, the outcome will be X. And so there's all this new stuff. I just don't like writing the code to do that because it's annoying to me, but there's this whole new class of technology called no code or low code. For example, like Bubble is a popular one. Webflow is another one. Amazon just launched one called Honeycode. And these things allow you to build applications without writing very much code. So there's the no code stuff, which as you might guess from the name, you don't have to write any code. And that stuff's cool, but I would say it's a little bit too limited for me. What I'm excited about is the low code stuff where you can kind of drag and drop the pieces of your application. And then you write a little code in between to kind of fine tune exactly what you want it to do. That's the stuff I like because that enables me to have as much control as I want over it, but I don't have to remember the dumb shit. Like if you've ever written code, like you'll spend a half a fucking day trying to figure out why some particular thing doesn't work. And then you'll realize it's because you like, I don't know, left out a semicolon in some function like that you wrote two days ago, or you misspelled like some dumb shit, like a typo, you'll spend two days hunting down. And with low code and no code, it minimizes all that because it's abstracted all that out. And I think that's really cool. We'll see where it goes. I don't think it's going to be something where like, you know, everybody uses it like they use a web browser or something, but I'm really excited for the future of low code and no code. So I hope to see it go somewhere. Next one from D Riley, favorite Taylor Swift album. Well, I like her old stuff because it's very like sweet and G-rated and nice. And I appreciate that. On the other, and it feels more genuine to me. On the other hand, her more recent pop stuff, she became very irritating <laughs> around the time that uh, Red came out, I think. She became kind of an irritating self-centered person where I kind of didn't really like her music anymore on sort of an emotional level. But there's no question that because she started working with people like Max Martin and whoever else, like the craft of the music, the level of craft is out of this fucking world. Like if you listen to like the arrangements and vocal melodies and stuff like that, like it's fucking incredible, even though I find her lyrics to be extremely irritating. So I don't know. It's toss up. I guess if I was going to listen to it, I would probably listen to, uh, I don't even remember the name of it, but the one with you need to calm down on it. Uh, even though the lyrics drive me nuts, the music is just so good that I can't ignore it. Next one from Joe Amato. When are you going to do a video about the worldwide oi skinhead movement? And I'm not talking about white power skins, but skinheads of every race and nationality from New York City to Indonesia to London to Mexico and back. Well, I'm probably not ever going to do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because a lot of other people have already made videos and documentaries about this stuff that would do a much better job than I can. I mean, I, I know the, the basic history of it. So for anybody who doesn't know, like you think of skinheads as, you know, Nazis, and that's actually not the majority of skinheads. And the origins of skinheads are actually the opposite of that. You know, the skinheads, as we know, it came up as like a working class, a movement of working class kids in the UK, oftentimes people who hung out with like Jamaican immigrants and stuff like that. So not at all racist. And then I don't actually know how they kind of I don't know how the racist skinhead thing became part of it, but it did in the 80s and 90s and it sort of took over the headlines for obvious reasons, because, you know, it's shocking and terrible to see the kind of things that they did back then and, and still, I guess, continue to do. But I'm probably not going to do that video because, like I said, I don't know the history as well as other people do. It's already been told. 
and it's just going to be a shit show. And like, I'm just not really, it's not a history channel. So I'm not interested. Like, it's not my job to tell the history of anything. Sometimes I do get into history because it is necessary to make the point that I'm trying to make to explain like a historical context. But it's not a history channel. And any subject like this is just going to turn into like a fucking shit show in terms of the comments and stuff. And I'm just not interested in it. And, you know, even the skinheads who aren't racist can oftentimes just be like violent dipshits. So I'm not really interested in attracting them. Not all of them are like that, of course. There's some super cool ones, but probably just not something I'm ever going to do. From Negative Two Spade, maybe a should these bands be bigger than they are video, the only one that comes to mind is Trivium. Well, I actually have a whole series called Bands That Should Have Been Bigger, which is basically this. I think I've done... I don't know, six or seven of them now. So if you haven't seen them, check that series out. I have a playlist for it. Next one from Leslie Lang. Something about the women punk movement from the 90s, Bikini Kill, Slater, Slater Kinney, etc. This is a great idea for a video, but again, it's something where I don't think I know enough about it to do a good job. And again, it's not a history channel. So, you know, people say, oh, well, you could do research about it. Yes, I could. But I, you know, I was around for that stuff, but I wasn't really like part of it. You know, it was just sort of around me. And I think it's really cool. I think it's a great story. I just think there's other people that would do a much better job of telling that story than I would. So, you know, with something like that, I don't want to tell that story badly because I think it's a story that deserves to be told well. Maybe someday I might do it. I don't know. But I think it was a really cool movement. I'm pretty sure there's some like books and documentaries and stuff about it already. So I don't know that I would be able to do anything that they haven't done. Next one from Freak Stomp 95 with Anthony at the needle drop have started to notice biases for certain genres of music of artists in his reviews or for instance how Pitchfork has such high standards for albums. Do you think this is fair to artists in some genres that may not be what some reviewers usually enjoy or should music critics keep lying and say they listen to everything when really they lean heavily towards one or two genres? Well, I don't think there's any problem with bias in reviews. I mean, everybody has biases. True objectivity is impossible. So what I think it's more about is like finding reviewers where you understand their biases and you can filter their reviews accordingly. For example, I mean, I don't really pay attention to any music reviews, but like with games, I know that, for example, uh, Jeremy Parrish um, from he used to write for Retronauts and One Up and stuff like that. Jeremy Parrish is a retro gamer who really likes 2D platformer type games. He's the one who coined the term Metroidvania. So if he is giving an opinion on a 2D platformer game, I'm going to take that very seriously. If he was to review a sports game, then I'd probably say I'd probably take his opinion maybe with a grain of salt because he's not a sports game guy. Or on the other hand, I might actually favor his review on a sports game more because I like the same kind of games as Jeremy does. And so then I would say, well, if Jeremy likes this as a non-sports guy, then I might like it too, even though I don't like sports games. So I don't think it's any problem to have biases. Like, I think that's actually a good thing. A critic should have a point of view. I think what's important is for them to just kind of be out front about that the same way as I always say, like, I don't really know shit about indie rock. I'm not interested in it. And so because of that, you should not really take my opinions on indie rock seriously. I, I think that's the way to handle it. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, 
but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMV, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Next one from Steve01. Since you're big into the hardcore scene, I'd like to hear your thoughts on why bands in hardcore always say they're doing a quote-unquote last show only to reunite again every single time, LOL. Yeah, this totally happens. The obvious example there being Bane, who I don't know how many how many last shows did they have? Like literally 10 or maybe even more. I don't know. You'd have to ask them, I guess, as to why they do that. I think, you know, if it was me, hardcore is not a big genre, even though, you know, it has sort of an outsized following on the internet, maybe, but like a big hardcore show has 200 people there. So I think there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is like, 
there's a lot of people who might want to go to this last show and just can't for whatever reason. So I think sometimes the bands will play, you know, they'll do a last tour or something like that, like Slayer did, to give people one last chance to go see the band without having to travel across the country or world to to do it. Uh, on the other hand, there's probably also some people that are like, man, after this band breaks up, like I don't have any, you know, I, I don't have a next thing and I'm kind of scared because... I like the attention that I get from this band and that's not a bad thing. I'm not criticizing them for that. And I kind of don't want this to be over because then what happens? Um, you know, I, I can't comment on why any like Bane or any other particular band, like why they did what they did. I don't know. Um, you'd have to ask them, but that would be my guess as to why some combination of those two things. From Gettys34, have you ever talked about punk scenes in Gainesville, New Jersey, Burlington, Ontario, Canada? So I get a lot of requests like this to like cover some regional scene in some city like Gainesville or whatever. That's probably not something I'll ever do. The only time I ever did that was about New York hardcore, which is such a like iconic, like high profile scene that you can know a lot about without having been there. Like I obviously was not part of the New York hardcore scene, but uh, I, I know enough about it to, I think, tell a version of that story that hadn't really been told on my platform, like kind of the the 90s and, and on era of it, the more like metal kind of era. But when it comes to like Burlington, Ontario, I don't know anything about that. There's no way that I would ever be able to do a good job of that, no matter how much research I did, because I wasn't there. Same with Gainesville. And again, it's not a history channel, so I don't really feel any obligation or have any interest in like you know, exploring the history of anything, especially something like that, that I wasn't around for and I don't have any emotional attachment for. And it also wouldn't get a lot of views. I mean, people, there's just not a lot of people out there that want to watch a video about the Burlington, Ontario punk scene or whatever, which doesn't mean that it's an invalid subject. It's just for me, you know, I have a business to run and I need, I need to think about what's going to get views. So for me to do these kind of obscure regional scenes just really wouldn't make business sense. Next one from Kevin Tannis. Wondering your opinion on reaction channels. It's funny because a lot of times they get copyrighted by YouTube because the label won't allow it. But at the same time, how many people are finding new music from reaction channels? It's like this generation's top 10 breakdowns for finding new music. Yeah, you're totally right. Uh, I think it's stupid if labels disincentivize people from making reaction videos or doing reviews by copyright claiming their video. So what happens, just so everybody knows, here there's a difference between a copyright strike and a copyright claim. A copyright strike is if you use somebody else's content and they file a strike, that means you have to take down the video. That means that it goes kind of on your permanent record with YouTube. Like if you get three copyright strikes, they can shut down your channel forever. So a copyright strike is a serious deal. Those are very rare. A copyright claim is different. That's when you use someone else's material, usually a song, and then they can choose to either block that video or they can take all the ad revenue for it. And usually they'll take all the ad revenue. For example, I have a couple of videos from a few years ago, like my new metal one actually got copyright claims. So I don't make any money off that video, even though it's my biggest one, uh, which is kind of frustrating. And that kind of gets to his point here is because there's potential of getting a video copyright claimed, that makes people not want to use music in their videos. And on the one hand, you know, it is the label's right to do that. It's their material and they can use it however they want. But I agree that it's dumb because this is the way people find new music now. So, you know, the amount of money, like, so roughly speaking, someone would make around $2,000 for a video with a million views. 
Now think about this. From your perspective as a label owner or someone in a band, which is more valuable to you? Somebody getting a million views on a reaction video involving your music or $2,000? I would choose the reaction video every fucking day of the week right? I mean, people spend thousands of dollars on marketing and promotion all the time. Why wouldn't they be excited about this ecosystem of reaction channels and stuff like that? Like the fact that Anthony Fantano can't use clips of the music in his reviews is so fucking stupid. These labels are shooting themselves in the foot. They should be begging Anthony to use clips of their music in his reviews because it would be the best marketing they could possibly get. So, you know, that's just the music industry for you. They're just kind of dumb and short-sighted and they always, you know, think about a penny now rather than a dollar tomorrow. It's kind of how they think. It's pretty dumb. Next one from Leif Erickson 923 Will you ever talk about prog metal like Mastodon, Gojira, and Tool? Maybe, you know, that's not something I'm super interested in. You know, I kind of touch on that stuff a lot because it's related to a lot of the stuff I talk about. But I would say that that kind of stuff falls a little bit outside the purview of punk influenced or punk related stuff or pop culture stuff, which is kind of the two things I like to talk about or even like rap. Um, it's just not really my sweet spot. I certainly know a lot about it. I could talk about it all day long. It's not that interesting to me, but I might do it. I mean, I do get a lot of requests for this. I don't want the channel to be like for um, these kind of obscure niche, like super nerdy things. I mean, I'll do that stuff now and then, but I really want the channel to be accessible to like a broader audience. You know, I think about someone like Drew Gooden or, you know, Jarvis Johnson, who, you know, you can watch like anybody can watch those channels and enjoy it. And that's kind of where I would like to go. Not necessarily maybe that broad, but, you know, I don't want you to have to be like some prog mega nerd to appreciate my videos, but who knows? We'll see. Apoplexia, I've seen some segments you were doing for URM Academy that you dabbled in music production. What is your favorite amp sound? Well, I've done a little bit more than dabbling in music production. Let me tell you that. I have spent the last seven, almost eight years of my life now producing online education for music producers. And I have worked with artists like Periphery and Converge and Between the Buried and Me and Dillinger Escape Plan and producers like Steve Evitz and Nolly from Periphery and Kurt Ballou and fucking Joey Sturgis and like everybody you can think of. I've probably worked with them. Uh, that was at Creative Live and then at URM Academy, you know, same thing. We've worked with every band you could think of like Lamb of God and uh, Gojira and Periphery and Bring Me the Horizon and Neck Deep and the story so far. And like I've been balls deep in music production for like the last eight years. And, you know, at the risk of tooting my own horn, like you can listen to the podcast I did with uh, A.L. Levy, one of my business partners in URM Academy. It's no joke that we have changed the way that people produce music and learn how to produce music. I was the first person to ever do like a live streaming online music production class the way that everybody does them now. I was the first person to do that back in 2013 with AL. So um, I have definitely done a little bit more than dabbling in music production, which is the reason why I'm not afraid to talk about it so confidently in my videos. As far as my favorite amp sound, uh, I think you really can't go wrong with probably, I don't know, 80% of the records you listen to are a Tube Screamer into a 5150 into a Mesa oversized cab loaded with V30s mic'd with an SM57. You kind of can't go wrong with that. Sounds great for pretty much any genre, but 
you know, if I was to pick one favorite sound, it'd probably be like Pantera. You know, nobody can play like Dimebag. The thing with guitar is that the amp really is not that important. They all sound fine. You know, pick your favorite high gain amp. They all sound good. What makes the biggest difference by far is the guitarist, like his or her hands are the biggest variable. Uh, new strings and shit like that matters a lot too. The cabinet also matters a lot. The amp itself is actually not that important. So not fixate on that for all you guitar freaks out there. Next one, I don't know who this is from because I didn't screen cap that part of it. I love the entrepreneurship marketing approach that you take to analyze topics in your videos. There are several channels on YouTube that do the same about music marketing or music production. And most of the time, those channels are selling products such as online lessons. You don't sell anything for now. Do you plan to go one step further and create paid for lessons about marketing? Do you plan to write a book or none of that because you're fine with sharing your time between YouTube and your other job? Well, actually, I have started doing something to kind of monetize this following that I have. Uh, what I've been doing since I think I started doing it in March is like a one-on-one -on -one social media coaching program. The goal of it is to help you build your online audience as a way of driving some sort of business. So it's a fit for two kinds of people. The first is a creator of some kind, like a YouTuber or podcaster, or you know, if you have an Instagram page or something like that, and you wanna grow that and turn it into your full-time job or something close to that, it's a fit for you. Not really a fit for bands. I don't work with bands other than a couple very select kind of projects. Like I did something with Ice Nine Kills. I'm about to do something with uh, of Mice and Men, but I don't really work with bands. The second kind of person it's a fit for is any kind of founder or CEO or entrepreneur that wants to grow their personal brand as a way of growing their company's brand. For example, I've been working with my friend Aram, who you may know from his old band Champion. He has a firm that does executive coaching and we've been building his profile as a way of building like the company's profile and getting them more clients. So that is the thing. And there's a link to that in the description if either of those two things is for you. So so those are the two, that's, that's what I've been doing to monetize this audience. Do I plan to write a book? I would like to write a book. It's just, it's so much fucking work. What I've been thinking about for a book is there's a book by Tim Ferriss, who you may know from doing the four hour work week called Tools of Titans. And that book is basically him interviewing a bunch of high achievers like athletes and CEOs and stuff like that about their habits and routines that enable them to achieve what they have. I've thought about doing something like that um, for people kind of in the creative realm. Obviously I would talk to a lot of like musicians and YouTubers and people like that. Some combination between that and like 12 rules for life. I don't know. I would like to do that. I think it would be successful, but it would be a lot of fucking work, which is why I haven't done it yet. From Mural, just want to say I have a lot of respect for you. You're into hardcore and rock music, but also pop and rap from what I can tell. I'm the same way, and a lot of my rock listening friends give me shit about it, but seeing someone like you listening to Variety makes me feel confident, more confident about it. Awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. I think, you know, it's sad. I've talked about this endlessly, but it's just, it's sad how dogmatic rock can be. There's no reason you should ever like feel bad about liking some kind of music. Like it's just fucking music. There's no reason why you should ever feel bad about liking anything. And if there's anything I can take away or if there's anything I can show people on my channel, that would be like one of the main things that I would want to convey. Next one from Tom Paget. Do you have a podcast? I can't find it. Well, Tom, if you're listening to this, then you found it. If not, then I guess you didn't. <laughs> Sorry. 
from Alex Hennig. I've got one for you. How come straight up every famous person, either A-list or all the way down to D-list, has perfect everything physically? Like, is it possible to break into the business if you're a normal person? Never do I see anyone famous with bad teeth or odd birthmarks or anything similar. Man, I think about this all the time. It's, you know, it, it feels like that's true, although it's really not. That said, you know, in the age of social media, physical appearance definitely does matter more than ever. Like if you look at people from the 70s or 80s that were famous like musicians, uh, a lot of them were not nearly as good looking as the people are now, or certainly like the beauty standard for both men or women. But I think especially men was way different than it is now. Like if you look at someone like Don Johnson, who was like a, you know, hot dude from the 80s, he probably weighed like 160 pounds. Like he was like a small guy. He's like my size. Now, you know, in order to be like the hot guy in Hollywood, you got to be jacked. You got to be in all kinds of steroids and working out all the time. You got to look like a fitness model. So the pressure is real, but you know, there are a lot of people who are really successful that are not necessarily great looking. For example, Post Malone. Dude is not good looking. I don't think anybody would say that that is, you know, an example of a hot guy. And yet he is super successful. So it is possible, you know, I, I mean, it's just an unfortunate fact of life that being good looking will help you pretty much in everything you do. And not all of us get to be good looking. You know, I deal with this. I, I, I second guess myself all the time and I feel bad about the way I look all the time for this exact reason. So I totally get it, but you can't let it hold you back. You have to believe that you can be successful uh, in whatever it is that you want to do, even entertainment, if you are not a great looking person. So hang in there. Don't let it get you down. Next run from X. <laughs> Not sure if you've done a MySpace video. One of my favorite things to talk about in college was the MySpace culture and bands and how it changed music and marketing, etc. Also, I was MySpace famous and I'm trying to relive, relive my glory days, okay? Yes, I will definitely do a MySpace video. I haven't yet. It's another one of these where I'm really excited to do it. It's just going to be a lot of work, and so that's why I kind of keep putting it off. But uh, I'm very excited to do it. I think it'll be popular, so stay tuned for it. It is coming. From Isaac Starsky Z, have you thought about doing a video on Marilyn Manson? I feel like he's an extremely inspirational artist to a lot of other bands that came after him. I have thought about it and I was going to do it, but then, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago or something like that, there were some pretty serious allegations from about him as far as like sexual abuse that came out. And I have no idea, you know, how true or not true those are or anything like that, but they seemed pretty credible to me. And Anytime there are allegations like that that come out that seem really serious and credible, I kind of press pause on talking about that artist because I would never want to accidentally, you know, platform or co-sign somebody who did something terrible. And I'm not saying that he did or didn't, you know, I don't know, but until it's kind of settled, I'm not comfortable talking about those people. Uh, and that includes him. From Moldy Cheese, what's your opinion on Hyperpop? So for anyone who's not familiar, Hyperpop is all that stuff like Charlie XCX and Sophie and 100 Gex and all that kind of stuff, which I've talked about quite a bit. I love that stuff. I think it's really cool and creative. It's probably my favorite like newer genre of music. I really like the way it sounds because I'm into pop. I also think there's just a lot of really cool creative energy there. A lot of people just doing weird shit and experimenting with stuff. Some of it works out, some of it doesn't, but I think it's really cool uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Next one from An American Boyfriend. How best to grow my YouTube when it's deliberately obtuse and hard to watch? Like, I don't want to compromise on making weirdo modern horror, etc., but it would also slap to get more than 50 views. Haha, -ha, thanks in advance. Well, look, 
it's your choice as to whether you want to compromise or not, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you don't get to just make whatever content you want and then your channel grows. Like you have to make stuff that people want, which may not be exactly in line all the time with what you want to make. Like there's trade-offs here. You don't just get to do whatever you want. I mean, I don't get to do whatever I want. There's a lot of videos that I would like to make, but I don't because I don't think it's something my my audience is going to watch or care about. You know, I could make, I don't know, there's like fucking obscure old Super Nintendo game called Front Mission Gun Hazard that I really like. I could make a whole video about Front Mission Gun Hazard, but nobody would watch it because that's not what my audience wants. And it's up to you to decide kind of for yourself how you want to balance them versus you, you know, but you have to understand that that oftentimes is a trade-off and, you know, you just kind of have to accept that and you can't cry about it. If you're saying you don't want to compromise, that means that maybe only 50 people watch your videos and that's your choice. I'm not saying which way you should or shouldn't go, but compromise is a fact of life. As soon as it becomes more than just an art project for yourself, it's a business and business is all about compromise and trade-offs. From I am Mike Swan, if you were in a band, what do you think you would be focusing on the next six months or the next year? Well, that's an easy one. I would focus on putting out a lot of content that is not promoting my music. Like I talked about before, like the, the analogy of the bank, like I would be putting as many deposits as I could into the bank over the next six months so that then when I have an album or a tour or whatever else that I want to promote, it would crush. So the fact that everyone is at home right now, not touring, like this is your time to be building your audience and putting out content. So do it. From David Bryan 83, did you or do you enjoy glam hair metal of the 80s? Yeah, I like it. Um, like Poison is pretty cool. Uh, pretty Boy Floyd is my favorite of all those bands. I think that stuff just to me sounds like, you know, fun pop punk. Uh, Guns N' Roses is fantastic. I mean, they're an amazing band, especially like listen to that on headphones, like the two guitar work is amazing. Like there's almost no other band that has done what they did with like lead and rhythm guitar without it turning into like craziness. So, you know, that stuff, it's a little bit hard to listen to now, just partly because the production is really dated, but uh, I think it's good stuff. From Black Licorice Official, as an emerging artist, it's clear that rock press focused too much on older bands. It's easy to know this, but how do you get quality press coverage as a young artist? Well, I don't think you need to. The press is not going to do that much for you. Like if you did get a write-up on Loudwire or something, it's not going to do that much for you. You know what? Maybe 50 people are going to click through to like check out your, you know, Bandcamp or Spotify or whatever. It's a lot of work to get that kind of coverage for very little return. Like it feels cool to say that Loudwire did a profile on you, but it's not going to really change your business. It's not going to like help your band grow as much as you probably think it will. So I would focus on creating organic content and building a relationship with the fans that you own rather than relying on the press. Like there's no cheat codes. You don't need them. Focus on the fans. And then if the press wants to write about you, great. That can only help you. If they don't want to, that's fine too. You don't need them. Focus on content and building your own audience, not on, you know, getting a cheat code from the press or the industry or anyone else from go duck yourself. Would you ever consider making a video about punk and metal songs and video games like burnout, Tony Hawk and need for speed, for example, or even grand theft auto and saints row. I actually did a video about exactly this about a year ago. So you can check that out if you want. From King Moa Yadomi, what is your opinion on FSU and other things related to the whole crew stuff? Well, I've talked about this in a couple of videos in I think one of my other Q and A's and in my straight edge video. Uh, you know, I don't, necessarily condone what they do or what, you know, anybody 
so these these the FSU is a crew for anybody who doesn't know, essentially a gang in the hardcore scene, and they've beat up a lot of people, and some of those people deserved it, some of them didn't. It is what it is, you know. You will never get in trouble with these people if you're just not around them, and I'm not saying that that makes it okay. I'm not saying that they should necessarily be doing that with their lives. And in fact, I think a lot of them would agree with me that that's probably not the best way to live their lives. But, you know, it's unfortunately just a fact of life with hardcore is that violence is a part of it. And if it's that big of a deal, I would say just don't don't be around them. You know, it's not hard to avoid those people. And if you are around them, 99 times out of 100, they're going to be cool with you if you're cool with them. I've been around these people a ton. I've never had a single problem with any of them. So my personal experience is positive with them. I know there's other people that have some broken noses and missing teeth that may not have such positive experiences. But I think, you know, if you're cool to them, they're probably going to be cool to you. And if you're worried about it, just, you know, don't go to those kind of shows. From Jessica Mesca, what's your favorite subgenre of rock and why? It's kind of hard to narrow this down to just one, but I would say, you know, I really like that late 2000s, like sad boy pop punk stuff quite a bit because it's, you know, not super cartoonishly goofy, like some of the older pop punk, but it's not too like down and serious, like some of the newer stuff. It's kind of that in between, like it's fun and it's about hanging out with your friends and kind of everyday shit like, oh, I wish I had a girlfriend and stuff like that and pizza and snapbacks and other stuff that I like. So, you know, I, I'd say that if I had to pick one, that would probably be uh, at the top of the list. From G. Andrasachi, do you ever listen to music? I do not listen to music as much as people might think. I mostly listen to business podcasts. It's obviously not that I don't like music. It's just like if you work at a pizza shop, do you want to eat pizza for every meal? Probably not. That's kind of how I feel about music. So I listen to it if I am writing something, uh, and that's really about it. Other than that, I'm going to listen to a business podcast or maybe watch a YouTube video. All right, I have a call in five minutes, so I will let you guys go for now. I I hope you enjoyed listening to me drone on and on answering your questions. I sincerely appreciate everybody who takes the time to leave a comment at all or that submitted a comment to this. I'm sorry I couldn't get to absolutely all of them, but I do read all of them. I appreciate your support very much, and I will see you next time. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.